Hip Hollow community, you're in the home stretch. It's the final push towards Christmas. You can do this. And so much of what has been possible at your church this Christmas is because of who God made you to be. And I know it might be difficult to see it right now, but it is such a privilege to be able to use our specific gifts in the service of the body of Christ. I mean, there are so many ways that we could be spending our energy and being able to do it for our local church community is pretty special. And whether or not you hear it from anyone at your church, hear it from me. Well done. And as soon as possible, give yourself some time to recover. I mean, rest. As difficult as Christmas can be, it's up to each of us to figure out how to recover. So no one else at your church knows what you and your family need. So come up with a recovery plan. Let your team know what it is. Let your family know what it is. Don't assume that anyone else will figure this out for you. It's up to each of us to recover well so that we can keep going. If you're new to our podcast, we exist to help you become more effective so that your church can become more effective. And we do that through this podcast, through our book, I Love Jesus, But I Hate Christmas. I mean, titled with the season in mind, but not really about Christmas specifically. We do it through the Philo Cohorts and the Philo Conference, which is on May 2nd and 3rd next year in 2023. Let's get right to our podcast today and our guest. He's my longtime friend and co-worker, Blaine Hogan. We had a really great conversation about his new book, Exit the Cave, which I highly recommend. And there's a lot of really applicable wisdom, not only from his book, but from our conversation. So let's dive right in. I'm really excited to be joined today by my longtime friend, Blaine you Hogan. You almost said good friend. Did I did. You, well, did I you, was thinking you know, saying say both things. Friend? No, I mean, we are good friends. Yeah. Good old friend. Old, longtime good friend, Blaine Hogan. There we go. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Todd. Hey. Wonderful to be with you. Yeah, good to see you again. My we, good friend. My <laughs> Yes. Yeah, we did work together uh, for a while, but this isn't really on topic, but our phase of life that our families are in, you know, it's like you have younger kids. Um, All my kids are adults. We just didn't really, you know, you hang out with people in the same stage of life. That's right. Uh, So uh, we didn't hang out that much except for working together. Yeah, which felt a lot like hanging out because we did it all the time. We did. What did we say? The best hours of our day. Yeah, the best hours of our day, Todd. <laughs> making making art for the Lord. Oh my goodness! Yeah, there's some good some good times there for sure. Oh my God! Yeah, and you know what is funny is because I'm thinking the irony of us doing this interview about a book that I wrote um, is because I remember the first time that we ever hung out was like I believe we were tr- trying to start our own mini book club do you remember this oh goodness okay this is sounding a little bit familiar i don't remember what the book was but i think you were reading something or i was reading something and i said oh we should both read this together and then we did that (laughs) but i i don't (laughs) remember the book oh my i don't remember the book (laughs) it's probably something something like made to stick or some like sure right businessy pop Psychology, so, yeah, something, so, art, creativity. So not Victor Frankel or uh, uh, I don't think Man's we have, have gone meaning. quite we, that we deep. Go, no. Just yet. Oh no. man, I. You know what? That's a shame that uh, we didn't keep doing that because I like the idea of a book club. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's start one, and okay. would you? And then everyone listening to this podcast can do one for my book. There we go. And it, we can enhance the twenty-five copies that have been sold up to this point. <laughs> So Blaine has written a book, which is sort of the reason we're talking. Yeah, any reason to talk to you is wonderful. And so we're going to talk about the book, 
which is called Exit the Cave. Uh, maybe before we get into kind of talking about the book, maybe just describe who you are and what are you doing. <laughs> yes. So you're <laughs> referencing um, a story that is told in the book that's one of my favorite stories. It's a very old tale. And the story goes that there's a rabbi and he gets lost in the woods and he stumbles onto a castle and he goes up to the door and the guard from above yells down to him, who are you? What are you doing here? And the rabbi says, this isn't a joke, by the way. It does yeah, sound yeah. like I'm a, yeah, doing a setup. Like what is the punchline? A rabbi <laughs> yeah. walks up to a castle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the middle of the night, stone sober. And the <laughs> rabbi says, say that again. And the guard, without skipping a beat, says, who are you? What are you doing here? And then the rabbi says, how much do they pay you? And the guard tells him, is like, what is happening here? <laughs> and the rabbi says, I will double your salary if you stand outside my door and ask me those two questions for the rest of my life. Who are you and what are you doing here? Oh, my goodness. It's so good. <laughs> um, it is so, so true. Yeah. I'm Blaine Hogan. Okay. <laughs> That's who I am. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm an artist, a filmmaker, a maker. And what am I doing here? I'm here to talk to you mm -hmm. about a book that I wrote that tells all of my deepest, darkest secrets in the hopes that it would uh, coax others to do the same. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what I'm doing here yeah, is okay. trying to be a more free person so that other people could be more free. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Writing something for your own benefit mm. in a way. And then, you know what, if something could happen that it helps other people, then uh, that's a bonus. But totally. I know for me, the the process of writing, I was like, I just need to get this out yeah. and help kind of refine my own thinking. And if somebody can benefit from it, then that's just like gravy. Yeah. And my, my process like kind of went from a number of different angles that are similar, but different to that where, so when I got this book contract was 2018 and I was still working at at Willow Creek Community Church, which mm -hmm. is where we first met one another. Yeah. Actually, we met each other way before then at Kensington when you were there. Isn't that okay. right? I don't know. When I believe, I think okay. so. I had come out to do some sort of talk or something and wasn't, oh, uh, I can't remember who was there, but I remember speaking there. And okay. I think I, that's where we met. Okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so I was, uh, I'm telling you the truth. This is a fact. <laughs> I met you there. We had a book club many years later. Yeah, okay. <laughs> fast forward, book club. <laughs> and so fast forward to that, I got a book contract. And initially, I thought I was going to write kind of a, a part to a deeper dive into this self-published book that I had written called Untitled. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of Exit the Cave was uh, I was going to dive deep into the tips and tricks that I had learned being an actor, an artist, creative director, mm -hmm. filmmaker. And I knew that along the arc of that story that I would tell some of the kind of deeper, darker secrets, some of the, the places that made me who I was mm -hmm. and kind of how I got to where I was and how, yep. um, you know, just the trajectory of that. And at any rate, I got that book contract 2018 and began writing the book. 
And right about that time is everything in my world professionally and community-wise fell apart as the unraveling of Willow Creek unfolded right before our eyes. And I began to kind of have a, a bit of a crisis of what I wanted to say and who I wanted to say it to because I found myself less and less a part of that evangelical, creative, megachurch world, yeah. knowing that I always wanted to live on the intersection of that, but everything was just kind of crumbling before our eyes. And then the pandemic began, and the m more I started trying to write, I realized that, kind of to your point, there was something maybe more personal that I wanted to talk about mm -hmm. instead of just tips and tricks on the creative process and speaking specifically to this uh, audience of Christian creatives. Mm -hmm. So I did what any professional writer does, which is ignore their agent and publisher for many months, <laughs> just deleting emails. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep, that's right. That's this guy. Yeah. <laughs> People would ask, well, how's it going? And then I would say, ah, I don't know. And they, they said, well, when is it due? And I said, I don't know. I don't really know. <laughs> It's like that scene in Office Space when um, he, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't he decides he's not going to go back. And he's like, well, what are you going to do for money? He's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm not going to do that. Right. And so for right. me, I was like, I'm not going to write that book. And they're like, well, what's your plan? I'm like, I don't really have one. <laughs> and so one day my agent convinced me to get on a Zoom call. And I felt so guilty because hmm. I was – so in trouble because I hadn't written a book and I was way behind. Yeah. And in fact, the thing that I said I was going to write, I wasn't sure I should write that anymore. Right, right. And on that call was a woman that I'd never met and my agent, Alex. And I realized I had been bamboozled into an intervention. And the woman <laughs> that was on the call was a writing coach. Okay. <laughs> and her name would, was Meredith. I am a person who really, who's not afraid to ask for help. I just didn't know the kind of help that I needed. Sure. And yeah. So eventually I began working with her and she said, we're going to throw out everything that you thought you were supposed to do. Forget all the authors and your circle of friends that you that you've watched write. Mm -hmm. Forget all of that. Forget the book that you sold. And let's just start asking, what do you kind of how we started? Who are you and what are you doing here? Yeah. And so for about four and a half months, I had to write a thousand words a day and send wow. them to her. And that became our routine. And eventually the book that I actually needed to write, which became way more of a passion project, is the book that came out, okay. uh, which is Exit the Cave. When I picked up your book, I was expecting it to be full of tips and tricks that you learned along the way. Yeah, of course. And so, yeah, as I was it's reading... It's a little bait and then switch. Yeah, no, I, and I, so as I started reading, I'm like, well, okay, this is not yet the book that I'm imagining, but I think eventually it will get there. Mm. But then, you know, it never really became that book. But I would say the thing that surprised me was that where you went and the insights that you had I feel like our, the tips and tricks are the fast way to crank out ideas or whatever. They're hacks. Yeah, at the root of it, it feels like what you were talking about is really not just about being creative, but thinking differently and yeah. inhabiting yourself fully and yeah. all the things that I would say a lot of us don't do well, which then lead to lack of creativity or you yeah. know, messy relationships or lack of progress or all the things that 
were looking for a tip and trick to solve, really you were dealing with kind of the foundational things of, in your instance, who you are as a person, as an artist. Yeah. But I think for me, it was definitely interesting to think about, okay, who am I as an artist, as a technical artist, as a human, and how is that affecting the things I'm doing? Yeah, because it's all symptomatic. So uh, if the output is good and healthy, it's probably because you've done some of that inner work in understanding where you've come from to understand a little bit more uh, of who you are and seeing creativity not just as a uh, a thing, a noun, um, something that you have more or less of or something you do, but it really is a different way of seeing. And in the introduction, I I talk about the switch that was made where I had gone to speak at a creative conference and had where I was the keynote speaker. Uh, The lobby was hosting the pre-party and I had had seen a bunch of people that knew who I was as I was checking in. Long story short, uh, when I went to go remove some of the food that I'd eaten for dinner out of my room, I locked myself out of my room in my underwear. <laughs> and uh, this was a few years back and I was in the South and I don't know why those two things are important to say, but they're true. <laughs> and I was asked by the front desk person that the only way I could get back into my room was if I came down to the lobby to identify myself in person. Uh, so I had to walk through <laughs> The crowd of pre-party conference people who knew who I was. And <laughs> I like how you're covering up right now. Uh, yeah, I literally <laughs> am covering up my body. You can't see it right now, but yeah. <laughs> I am fully clothed, but yeah. I want to put more clothes on. Um, but the way that story ends is on stage the next morning, in a flash, I completely changed my talk. Hmm. And so I was going to tell everyone my tips and tricks, uh, but instead I decided to offer them my story instead. And the book is the story, basically all the stories that I told Hmm. the audience that morning that led me into this reimagining and new understanding of creativity that came through a better understanding of my story. Yeah. That's so good. Could you maybe talk about the, just even the title, where did the title come from? Because I love yeah. kind of that, that whole idea uh, was, yeah, really kind of eye-opening for me. Yeah. So when I was 17, I heard the uh, story of Plato's allegory of the cave. So Plato, the great Greek philosopher, and essentially it's his sort of metaphor of how someone comes out of the darkness and into the light of truth. So how do we learn things, basically, kind of his idea and the, the image that he presents is imagine a tribe chained facing this giant wall in the belly of a cave. And they've been locked up there since forever. And they're being forced to look at all of these shadows that are being projected on the wall. At some point, the hero of our story stands up, the chains fall off, and he realizes, oh, we're not locked at all. We're free to go at any time we want. And he turns and he sees that everything has been kind of, it's all an artifice. Uh, It's all been orchestrated. So the shadows aren't just appearing on their own. There's actually this giant fire and other people are walking past objects, a tree, a chair, a dog, and that's what they are seeing as truth. But beyond that big fire is this dot of light. 
and it calls to him and he begins moving towards that dot of light and every step is more painful than the last because he's moving into a place that he's never moved to before mm -hmm. and he steps out into the light the light is searing and painful but eventually his eyes adjust and he sees everything for what it is that's plato's understanding of that's how you learn the truth but the twist at the end of the story is that the hero of the cave who's just exited he doesn't run away as far as he can he turns around he goes back into the darkness and he goes back in front of his tribe and he says there's so much more and I remember hearing that story when I was 17 and already I had experienced a good bit of trauma in my life. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in my humanities class wondering if that was true. Was there actually more or was there just the shadows that I had been seen, had been shown in my life up to that point? And that story always stuck with me. And I've told it probably in every creative conference or talk saying that that's our job. Our job is to find whatever we call the truth. And I'm not saying truth as in like fundamentalism. I'm just saying, mm -hmm. you know, good artistic creative truth mm -hmm. and share that with people who are looking at shadows. That's sort of like the, the contract between the artist and the audience. Mm -hmm. And I'd always told that story, but what I'd never told, and I always told it in kind of like how you were expecting to read the book right. through these sort of tips and tricks of like, this is what you do. You go back into the, you learn the things and then you go back into the darkness, into the cave, into the theater, into the auditorium, into the gymnasium, whatever it is, wherever the space is that you're making. And you remind people that there's so much more. Mm -hmm. But what I'd never really talked about is my journey from getting out of the cave before I went back in. Yeah. And I realized that in telling those stories, because in working through those stories of pain and trauma is how I began to unlock the creativity of mm -hmm. my life. So yeah, so that that's the the Plato's allegory of the cave in a nutshell or in my case seven and a half minutes of exposition, <laughs> which if my wife were here she'd be like, "Blaine, wrap it up." <laughs> well, I have to say thinking about that story and hearing you say it again, there's so much about my own life or my, you know, just the people around me I feel like are, you know, living in the cave and have not Mm. gone through the journey of coming out of it. And, you know, there's probably like a thousand different ways you've exited the cave, uh, you know, yeah. just like in all That's different right. little areas of life. And yeah. I think about our audiences typically, you know, listening to this technical artist in the local church. And I think it's pretty safe to say we have a reputation of being grumpy and, mm. you know, say no a lot. And I think so much of it comes just as I have been reading your book and talking about Exit the Cave, just that so much of it feels like because I'm stuck in the cave, I respond yeah. in a negative way or there's fear, you know, about, you know, what's out there. And so just yeah. I know what's here and it's safer. And yeah. so... Yeah, it's um, I can protect myself and you have probably had people listening had so many experiences where the outcome was not good whatever oh, yeah. it was, mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, I don't want that to happen again. Or I did that edit, and I did the thing that I thought was going to work, and then they said, nope, that's not the thing. And then you kind of fall into a place where you're like, fine, well, then just tell me what you want, right, and I'll just right. do that. Or whatever, whatever, template that 
across a million different disciplines yeah. of technical artists and a hundred percent. And yeah. so we're we're all stuck. We're all, all of us have caves that we are hiding in a hundred percent. And I think too, just even as you were talking, I'm thinking back to a conversation I had with somebody that we both worked with and they kept saying like, well, we're not allowed to do that. Mm. I don't even remember what it was. And I'm like, who told you that? He's like, well, yeah. you know, just you know, just kind of word on the street or whatever. I'm like, have you heard anyone say that, that we can't do that or that we shouldn't push for this or whatever? And it got down to like, no, nobody has told us that we can't do that. So I'm like, why are, why are we just sitting here? Let's try it. Let's, but that person was, you know, chained in the, in the cave and, you know. Totally. Yeah. Yep. And one of the things I I always go back to, and I think that this is in a lot of ways, this, this theory of uh, this the undoing of the space-time continuum. So I think all of my fellow nerds will appreciate <laughs> this metaphor. But this idea is probably the single most idea that unlocked exactly what you're saying. So essentially it goes like this. We think of time as linear, mm-hmm. that it's past, present, future. But the way that we actually experience time is a bit inverted, past, future, present. And by that, I mean, you take anything that's happened in the past and we have really short-term memories and we tend to put way more weight on the hard or bad or painful or traumatic things than we Mm -hmm. do on the good things. So what ends up happening is we start looking at the the instances where we were told no, the instances where we got it wrong, the instances where we tried that and we can't do that again, or just in your own personal life, those moments of pain at which become trauma – Mm-hmm. you do exactly what you're saying is you protect yourself. And mm-hmm. so by doing that, what you you do is you imagine, so these things happen in the past, you imagine they're going to happen again in the future. Yeah. And however you imagine the future is how you live in the present. And the only way to kind of undo all of that is to go back into the past and sit with some of those harder memories mm-hmm. and wonder what is the goodness in those spaces. Mm-hmm. So let's use the example that that you gave with someone who maybe has tried something and they were told no, and they did that a number of times to the point where they heard a, a voice that was created by them that we're not allowed to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so this is from a kind of professional standpoint, then we can kind of go personal. But from a professional standpoint, could you sit in a moment where someone told you no again and again and again? And also, because I think there's a big spiritual component to this, which is resting in the moment of those things happening and listening to the goodness of God in those moments, Mm -hmm. calling you, I created you to be curious. I created you to take risks. I created you to try. I created you to think differently. I created you to solve problems uh, where people don't yet see them or create solutions where people don't even know that there's yet a problem. Mm -hmm. And could you look at those stories of past pain and harm and actually change the past? Because we're really bad narrators to our own pasts and even in these professional moments ago, like just exactly what you, you, you are being kind of the beautiful voice of a guide that's saying, who told you that? Mm-hmm. And then you go back and go, uh, go back into your story and you start realizing, oh, no one actually did ever. <laughs> I've never heard anyone actually say that. Yeah. But I believe I've become an, an unreliable narrator to my own story mm. that someone has said that. 
But when you go back and do that work, exactly what you're saying and mining the particularities and go, wait, did someone actually say that? And you realize, no, no one did. All of a sudden, the past that was locked, that was that was causing you to imagine this future that you need to protect in the present, all, all of a sudden unlocks this whole thing. And exactly what you're saying is, okay, well, so if that wasn't said, well, then what could be? And then when you start imagining a different future, you really do start, it gives you the freedom to live differently in, in the present. And to me, that sort of change from past, future, present, from a past that seems locked in finite, that is malleable and could change, and you could understand it in a different way. To me, that's actually the most creative act. But you again, we could talk about tips and tricks and hacks and like how to have a better creative process. But really, we need to go, why am I so afraid? Yeah. And yeah. start from oh. there. I mean, I think there were so many times, if I go way back into the early parts of my life as a technical person at the church, I could just remember the biggest struggles I was experiencing were relational. They had nothing to do and like how I was showing up yeah. in a relationship and how the right. other person was and had nothing to do with like how much gear I had or how big our stage was or any of that stuff. And I would go to events where we'd get together as tech people and we were always talking about gear. What kind of mic are you using and what, you know, lights and whatever. I'm like, how come we're not talking about like the fact that I feel like I can't get along with my the worship pastor at my church. Totally. And we have to work together every day. Yeah. And I just think it's so hard to show up to those with like, there's a part of this that I need to own and figure yeah. out that right. I'm not what I do, but I'm more than that. And how yeah. the other person is showing up that way too, potentially. Well, because it's so much easier to talk about microphones. You have a Shure and I've got this Blue Yeti. And so let's yeah. talk about yeah. the differences between the sound quality and the megahertz and the, now I'm showing, <laughs> I have no idea. What I have I'm no idea what you're saying either. So <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Wait, are you a tech director? Uh, well, you know, yes, I am. Yeah, just we'll keep that between us. I'm the but least technical so much, person, you know. Yes, but yeah. it's so much easier to talk about those things than to come with some of the more real, harder things mm -hmm. that actually will unlock the better solve for all of those issues. Yeah. Who cares? Because usually when people are fighting over an idea, they're not fighting over an idea. They're, you know, there's some sort of entanglement of their relationship. And yeah. most of us in the creative and tech worlds have not been equipped to mm. have those kinds of hard conversations. But all of that starts with your own story and going, uh, asking the question, what the, what the rabbi is asked, who are you and what are you doing here? Yeah. And try to, to do some of that inner work, uh, whether it's with a therapist or a spiritual director, to be able to uncover some of those things so that you have a better sense of how you are showing up yeah. in the relationship, how you are showing up as a member of your team. Yeah. Oh man. When I just think about all the fears, you know, that I live with or have lived with or the the insecurities that come from, you know, how well I do at the last service defines who I am at the next one. That's right. Uh, or whatever. Yeah, it just like it's so destructive. Yeah, well, yeah, it is. And and because the pressure to perform and the pressure to do better and the pressure to outdo yourself feels so high. I know this isn't in the book, but something that as I kept working, so I was at Willow for right about 10 years. And I, for so long, felt the pressure to outdo myself. Sure, yeah. And felt the 
how unhealthy that was. And something, I can't remember where the idea came from, but I started thinking about an artist's portfolio mm-hmm. of work. And when you are looking at someone's portfolio, you're not, you're not necessarily looking at each page and wondering, is the next page getting better than the last? Of course, you could look at it that way. Right, right. But a good teacher or a good guide or someone who's looking at your portfolio and reviewing it is not going to look at it at its individual merit in terms or in relationship to the page that came before it. Mm-hmm. They're going to look at the entirety of the whole portfolio. Mm. And so once I started looking at weekends as a portfolio that I was just simply adding to, it began to lessen the pressure. And so my life fell apart a few years before I ended up at Willow and went off to Seattle, uh, a school of theology and psychology. And there I learned a ton about brain chemistry. And it's something that I take into my directing work now which is essentially if you live in a state of fear, your brain is being flooded with a chemical called cortisol. And cortisol is the fight, flight, fawn, or freeze chemical. And we're, our bodies are built to put this off when like a bear attacks or the right. senior pastor walks in. <laughs> 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 and and so the but the opposite of of cortisol is dopamine. Dopamine is like the good feeling and flooding your brain with that puts you at ease. And the interesting thing between cortisol and dopamine is that studies will show that people who are experiencing cortisol will make less creative decisions Mm. than someone whose brain is being flooded with dopamine. Um, Because cortisol, the fight, flight, fawn, or freeze is the four different categories. There's really just four options. You You just do one of those and you act immediately. But you're not thinking like, well, what is the what's the most interesting choice? You're not thinking right, of that when a right, bear right. is attacking you. You're like, <laughs> yeah. how could I how could I contact improv my way up this tree? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're just trying to get up the tree so the bear doesn't eat you. Right, right. <laughs> and so, but so many of us either intentionally put ourselves in places where the cortisol is always high or mm. we are unfortunately being led and in situations where that is how our leader is intending to lead us. Yeah. I would say there were times where both were true in my career at mm. Willow Creek where, yeah, just both were true. Yeah, And so I have to then be able to do something different because I know that I'm not a leader who's trying to help me do my best by stressing me out and putting me in a a pressurized, fearful situation actually isn't doing the best thing for my brain to do the thing they want me to actually do. And once I learned that, I learned, oh, so now I, and again, this is kind of back to us, we can blame them or I could say I have a responsibility to figure out a better way to deal with, because what's going on with that person and that leader doesn't have anything to do with me either. They just haven't done their work. And so they're coming out sideways and they're thinking this is how we're going to get the best out of people is if we flood them with cortisol. And so all that to say, as I began doing some of the work that I talk about in the book and looking at services specifically, because that's the audience, is it's a portfolio of work. And I go, everyone is just adding to another page. All of a sudden, the cortisol goes way down and I go, oh, well, what can I try now? And right. go, I am not going to feel your pressure for this to be perfect. 
And once I began doing that, I mean, that's tricky. That's hard to do because people really want to keep you in that space. But the truth is you're not in, if you're in that space, you're actually not doing your best work. Right, right. When I was working at Willow, I had somebody come visit that I used to work with back in Michigan. And he started telling stories to my coworkers. And I thought, I've, I mean, I don't know what he's going to talk. I don't know where these stories are going, but I'm like, all right. Uh, and they were about me. So the, yeah. uh, he was like, yeah, so there was this one time, you know, I was running front of house and, you know, uh, we're start, we had a string quartet, which is like a big deal. We, we'd never done that before. And uh, anyway, the song starts and, you know, this front of house engineer is looking down, doing his thing. And Todd leans over and says, string quartet. And, you know, he'd forgotten to turn the mics on. Oh. So he's like, okay, you know, getting, you know, that together. And then, you know, a few seconds later go by and Todd leans over again, lead vocal. You know, he forgot <laughs> to turn that on in the course of things. And I'm like, I don't remember this moment at all. Mm. But his conclusion was it was so good to not be yelled at or, you know, have like all this energy coming at me when I was kind of screwing up that, you know, gave me the calmness to keep going, you know, not just yeah. freeze. And um, that's right. And, Yeah, I just think I've been many places where fear has been the, you know, kind of the driving factor. um, And it just doesn't help anybody. No. I can pretend to be giving you 110% on the outside, but really I'm I'm just a fraction of what I could be giving you. And I I love what you're saying about, you know, there's a certain part of this that, okay, yeah, uh, if I'm working at a place where fear is the order of the day, I maybe need to think about going somewhere else. Like if I don't have control over it. That's right. But I do have control over how I learn how to respond to it. That's right. And respond in a positive way. Yeah, because I know in some places I was at that it 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 became kind of a, a routine, almost like a mantra to go, oh, that's not about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not about me. Yeah. And so understanding that that person has come from a place, that person has got things that they're working through. Mm -hmm. And now sometimes it might be about you. (laughs) Sometimes, and that's hard. You got to kind of figure that out. Sometimes, you know what? That's just like, we made a mistake. And so that's definitely about you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But a lot of times it's not. And being able to feel and understand the difference. But again, until you kind of know where you are coming from, Mm-hmm. You don't have the sensitivity to be able to do that. You have to have it and know it for in yourself before you can start to kind of diagnose and understand how it's happening around you. Yeah, yeah. I know for me, there was a season of time where I just, I learned to respond by, okay, I'm going to take, I got an email or a note passed to me or something like that. And I would say, okay, remove every exclamation point, mm. every capitalized word, you know, like all caps, every underline, a- anything that was like adding emphasis. Yep. And okay, now read the now read the note. And yep. just because, yeah, all that energy is not my problem. It's, you know, yeah. this person like doesn't know how to yeah, get the best out of me. So I'm just going to read what is the what's the message? And that's you right. know, take all the emotion. What, what out are of the it. facts? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. What are the facts? Um, or the other, the opposite. I remember getting emails that were so short and curt that I I read into them, this is the meanest thing I've ever read in my entire life. (laughs) And so I had to almost do the opposite and like elongate it. And imagine it would has 
cloaked in a larger paragraph. And it's <laughs> yeah. horrible to have to do that that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes if you are working with leaders who have not yet done their own work, if that's a place that you feel called or led to stay, mm-hmm. that is some of the work that you might have to be doing. Yeah. Uh, so a couple quotes I pulled from your book. To see the humanity of your enemy is the beginning of the end of conflict and the beginning of peace. I just, I thought mm. that, that it's so often that it's easy to see that other person as an enemy, like that's that's going against you. That's right. In the Philo community, I seem like I talk about this all the time, but like I'm designed one way, you're designed another. We're coming at a problem kind of from opposite directions and it can feel like, you know, there's this tension and like yep. we're fighting each other, but really it's it's a it's a good thing, you know, that we're coming at the problem from different perspectives. But it's real easy to see that other person as an enemy. But I just I love that um the idea of seeing that person as a human. Totally. And I think that some of that is I mean, some of this is harder to do depending on what your role is. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the the story that that chat that a quote comes from is I had gone to the Middle East and got to sit in what was known as the parent circle. And the parent circle included family members on both sides of the con- conflict, Israeli and Palestinian, whose children had been lost in the con- in the conflict. Mm-hmm. And so they chose instead of sort of dehumanizing the other, that they would actually come together and be proximate to one another mm. so that they could not make them just kind of cold enemies, but realize that they too came from a place, that they too have, uh, you know, hold Imago Day in them. Yeah. And so uh, the the kind of call to action there is in the places that you are having that conflict, and especially when it's in a work environment that is pressurized of a weekend service, how do you outside of that space, we do this with our kids too, is like you can't really parent in the moment. You have to do it all on the like before time or For way, sure. way yeah. after all right. when you're not in the middle of it and get proximate with that person. Like mm. you, you might need to learn some more about their story that has nothing to do with whether or not they plugged in that cable to understand who they who they are as a person. Right, right. Yeah, there's uh, somebody in sort of the tech world that says, you know, don't ask the guitar player to turn their amp down if you don't know the names of their kids. Oof, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just really uh, getting to know each other, you know, seeing the humanity in each other. Yeah, it's sort of lessens the the feeling of you're against me and so i guess yep. i have to be against you that's right yeah one of the other things so you've left willow creek you're doing freelance work and now you've decided to join a, a production company what i highlighted was what if i said yes and the other shoe didn't drop so you're thinking if i say yes then something bad's going to happen so you're saying yep. what if i say yes and the other shoe doesn't drop uh, what if things did work out what if we lived a life of constantly waiting for calamity you know, will inevitably come. The idea of things going well can sometimes be the scariest of all. I mean, I I resonated so much with that. Just like the, if I step out, what if something, yeah, what if it does go well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that that's kind of the past, future, present, but put in a different light. Yeah. Is like, I know it's going to go bad. It's always gone bad, so I'm not going to try. But what if, what, what if it, it, what if that's not the thing you're most afraid of? What mm. if it is, 
oh my gosh, that went great. What would that do to you? I think most of us live a scarcity mindset. Oh yeah, yeah. And we want to live abundantly, but I actually think that a lot of us, and I feel this too, is like, I'm actually afraid to live with a, an abundant mindset because then I'm actually not in control. Right. There's something yeah, about yeah. like having a scarcity mindset where I'm the one like grinding it out makes me feel like I'm somehow in control. Right. Even if it keeps me in this sort of like scared cave cavernous yeah, place yeah. filled with shadows that aren't the truth. But exactly what you're saying is, well, I guess I'm saying it, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, God, you that are. guy's good. Yeah, That's his yeah, name. Right, write this down. <laughs> that guy should write a book. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, the fear of failure, but also the fear. I can remember in one of our conversations, I don't know if we were working together or if it was, you know, some of the conversations we've had since then, but just the idea of, you know, you have an idea that you're presenting and mm-hmm. then it gets approved. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, geez, now I got to actually do this. Totally. Yeah, Yeah. I remember two things is anytime I had to do like a big presentation for like Easter or Christmas or something like that, Mm -hmm. every morning I would throw up. I always throw up because I just felt the pressure of it. I wanted it to go well or what if it doesn't or what if it does. Mm -hmm. Two, we had to go up to the third floor Mm -hmm. to, to do those meetings. And we would always walk up there. And a few years in, I was like, I got to take the elevator. And they, I, people would like laugh because it was like floor up. Yeah. But I'm like, no, no, no. I need my heart rate as low as humanly possible. <laughs> I cannot, cannot do steps. And exactly what you're saying, where sometimes we would pitch, we would say the thing and they would go, that's great. And then I'd be like, oh, no, 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 we don't actually have to do it. <laughs> yeah. It was just an idea. Yeah. Like um, <laughs> that I was, yeah. And sometimes I've gone back to some of those moments. And, and when I was throwing up, was I throwing up because I was scared that the idea wasn't going to happen? Or was I more afraid that they would say yes and then we'd have to do it? Figure it out, yeah. The other thing I love, and uh, I feel like this is something that everybody should write on a piece of paper and post it somewhere in your office, on your lighting console, everywhere, which is the Hogan family rules. I really love that. Be kind, have courage, fail, ask for help. And maybe you added one more after that. Um, Yeah. Come on, Todd. Do it afraid. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I just love those. So good. I mean, just for humans, not just Hogan's. No, all yeah. the humans should yeah. do it. They're uh, on the website, exitthecavebook.com. If you sign up for the newsletter, you'll get a downloadable print of oh, all cool. of those um, that was illustrated by my friend, Lindsay Letters. Oh, yeah. Uh, who's an incredible illustrator. Uh, but, yeah, those have – we. that's like our our – Every morning we say, I start saying it, the girls repeat it back to me. Obviously, be kind to one another, but mostly to yourself mm-hmm. is what we're saying. Have courage, which is just, just go, just go. Mm-hmm. And it's in within you. You don't need to just, it's just right there for you yeah. to be courage, courageous. Fail, the woman who owned Spanx in an interview, she was asked, how did you 
become an entrepreneur? And she said, well, I don't know if I, if that was like instilled in me, but more the comfort or the comfort with failure mm. that her dad would always say when they came home from school and they were sitting around the dinner table, not how was your day? They would ask, what did you fail at today? Like, what did you try and didn't go well? And it could be as small as like the new kid, I tried to say to the new kid and they ignored me. And they were like, amazing, congratulations. Yeah. Just so they would get comfortable failing ask for help. As I mentioned before, like I needed a writing coach. We cannot do this work alone, which is the beauty of the church is mm. you cannot do this. That is, it is not a solo sport mm. creating services. And so you have to ask for help. And then the final thing is I, as an actor, uh, I have the terrible affliction of having stage fright. And so <laughs> at some point I had to real, I had to go, okay, so I just have stage fright, but I also want to be an actor. So <laughs> I have to, uh, I, I came to the realization that the goal is not to be fearless. I don't know if that's actually possible. I think that's actually in my um, theological, um, theologically accurate, everyone, this is fact, theological fact, why the Bible says do not be afraid so many times is because <laughs> God knows that we are going to be. Mm -hmm. And so the goal is not to remove the fear because I don't know, for me, that's never been possible. But what I can do is do it afraid. Yeah. Is that I can, I can, move forward even though i am i am afraid and so yes be kind have courage fail ask for help do it afraid that is the hogan and human motto <laughs> yeah. yeah so good you know what i'm so glad that you did not write the book for the tips and tricks mm. i mean i was looking for them but these feel like just truths of life that so many people just uh, i don't want to say ignore but just are unaware of that mm. of the need for us to be working on them. We would say at Philo, our goal is to help be people become more effective so that the local church can become more effective. And so that for me, okay, there's some skill development. I get better at being a lighting designer or whatever, important, but I feel like just being an effective human is really the goal. And I just, I love that your book, instead of just sort of taking, doing the surfacey things, it's really digging into like us as humans. Like how do we become more effective? Not more efficient, but just like fully ourselves. Yeah, and, and yep, and that's it, fully ourselves. It's becoming more whole. Mm -hmm. Whereas so often our work asks us to compartmentalize ourselves. And I think that you will get, you will do your best work in your work and in your life as you do the work to become more whole, which is exactly what you're saying. You'll, yeah. you'll be so much more effective. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking time. And thanks for writing all the things down. I mean, I know mm. writing a book is painful work. And then writing oh, the book that you wrote feels like uh, not double pain, but uh, like maybe 10 yeah, times. No, I'd say that. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, well, yeah it's a factor. Yeah, more than it's, double. A, it's a multiple. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't do math. Uh, that's not my thing, but it's a lot. A lot, a lot of pain. Yeah, yeah. But I'm glad I did it. Yeah, me too. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Todd. Like we talked about in our conversation, Blaine's book was not at all what I was anticipating, but there were still so many great takeaways for me. You know, thinking of the work we do as technical artists as a portfolio of work and not just this week is better than last week or last Christmas was bigger and better than last. 
It's such a helpful way to think about what we do. And it's so easy to define our sense of worth based on how good our last service went when it is about so much more than that. I also think we need to all post the Hogan family rules in our production booths. Be kind, have courage, fail, ask for help, and do it afraid. I mean, these are just such great reminders of life, not specifically of being a technical artist. Obviously, uh, I'm assuming the Hogan family isn't full of technical artists, but yeah, their family rules are so good for what we do. As we're winding down 2022, thanks for listening to the Philo Podcast. I mean, we hope that it's been helpful to you as you journey through this life as a technical artist in the local church, and that not only are you more effective as a tech person, but simply a more effective person. Uh, 2023, it's going to be an exciting year, and we're working full blast on the Philo Conference, again, which is May 2nd and 3rd at Willow Creek Church in South Barrington, Illinois. And if you're still thinking about bringing your team to the Philo Conference, you know, there's still time to sign up, maybe while you're waiting for Christmas service number seven to start or something like that. Talk about a great way to recharge in the new year. I know it's a few months away, but one of the most important parts about taking care of yourself and your team is to plan for it. So make a plan, get some tickets, bring your team to Philo. We got a few other surprises that we're cooking up in 2023 that we can't wait to share with you. So you can stay informed about what's happening at Philo by following us on social media at Philo Community, on Facebook and Instagram, and at Philo Conference on Twitter. Maybe even consider subscribing to our newsletter on philo.org or subscribing to this podcast to stay up to date on all things Philo. All right, until next year, see you later.